it became uh, a rallying cry. I still travel around the world today and go to some of the poorest places in the world and women will greet me by saying, you know, women's rights are human rights. From Georgetown University, this is Seeking Peace. I'm Alain Verveer. And that, of course, is Secretary Hillary Rodham Clinton, with whom I worked for many years. Today, she is Georgetown University's Honorary Founding Chair of the Institute for Women, Peace, and Security, which produces this podcast. Throughout her career, she has broken many barriers and led in countless roles, including being the first woman ever nominated for President of the United States by a major political party. She has always worked to advance progress for women at home and overseas, to support their economic independence and the role that women play in peace and security, including in Afghanistan, where Secretary Clinton has a long record of advocating for Afghan women to have an equal role in leading and rebuilding their country. Later in the show, we take you to Afghanistan, where women are doing the physical work of demilitarizing parts of their war-torn country. But first, we began our conversation with Secretary Clinton, in which she tells me that her determination to fight for women's rights and equality started at a young age. I was one of those little girls who was always saying it wasn't fair uh, that uh, the boys got to do certain things and we didn't. I didn't have any reason to uh, be worried or concerned about my family's attitude because my parents were, you know, very keen on urging me to do everything I wanted to do. But society still had some of these barriers and. I don't think I ever thought of it in terms of women's equality. I just did not think it was fair. But as I got older and uh, starting certainly in uh, college and then law school, I began to encounter some of the structural barriers. There were schools, as you well remember, that uh, young women couldn't apply to. There were jobs you might as well have uh, just forgotten because they were never going to be available to women, or so we thought at the time. Uh, there were places you were not welcome. Uh, and then there were a lot of attitudes toward uh, young women that really did put you down. You know, for example, when I was thinking about going to law school, I remember going to take the law school admission test. And I went, and we were in this huge lecture room at Harvard where the test was being administered, very few women in the room. And my friend and I were sitting at the same table. And all these young men started saying, I can't believe you're going to take a spot away from me. I'll get drafted and sent to Vietnam, and I'll die, and it'll be your fault. And just this drumbeat of harassment right before we were supposed to take the test. And it was all I could do to keep my concentration, like don't get rattled, don't get... Uh, you know, intimidated. Um, and then when I was admitted to a couple of the law schools that I applied to, I was trying to make up my mind between Harvard and Yale, and I went to a reception for potential incoming students at Harvard. 
and I met a young man there that I had known uh, who was a law student, and he was taking me around introducing me, and he took me up to this very imposing-looking professor, like a character out of the old uh, series and movie Paper Chase. And this young man said, oh, Professor so-and-so, this is Hillary Rodham. Uh, She's trying to decide between us and our nearest competitor. And he was about six feet five or six, and he looked down at me and he said, well, first of all, we don't have a nearest competitor. And secondly, we don't need any more women. I thought, okay, I'm going to Yale. Um, And you're, you're just, you know, in those moments when you can't believe what has been said to you. Um, But, you know, there it was. And so I became very uh, focused on uh, speaking up for myself, speaking up for other uh, women. We didn't have very many in our class at Yale, but we, you know, kind of bound ourselves together. Uh, and from that point on, as I you know, got out into the world of work, I was primarily concerned about um, children and children's rights and had written about that and then went to work for the Children's Defense Fund. But there was always this other strong theme about women and girls and, and our rights and, and our place in society and the economy. Let us all join together in welcoming the next president of the United States of America, Governor Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, and Chelsea Clinton. You moved from Arkansas to Washington. You're the first professional woman uh, now in this position that has no job description, called First Lady of the United States. And so you um, get an invitation Uh, in 1995 from the UN Secretary General, who was asking you to keynote the the UN's Fourth World Conference on Women. And that speech was a closely held speech. There was enormous speculation about what you would say. Uh, Everybody reassuring um, the press that you wouldn't make any waves. Uh, But then you went. Thank you very much. And you gave that speech. I don't know how you felt. I was a nervous wreck. Uh, But you mounted that rostrum. There are some who question the reason for this conference. Let them listen to the voices of women in their homes, neighborhoods, and workplaces. And it was a, a litany, in a way, of abuses that women suffer the world over. It is a violation of human rights when a leading cause of death worldwide among women ages 14 to 44 is the violence they are subjected to in their own homes by their own relatives. It is a violation of human rights when women are denied the right to plan their own families and that includes being forced to have abortions or being sterilized against their will. If there is one message that echoes forth from this conference, let it be that human rights are women's rights and women's rights are human rights once and for all. When you went to Beijing, 
these rights weren't even considered um, integral to international human rights law. That's exactly right. And reminding me of how much opposition there was within our own government, not just in the executive branch, but also in the Congress to my going. Uh, there was a fear on the part of some that it would legitimize the Chinese regime and somehow overlook their human rights abuses. So I was very clear in my speech that even though I was in Beijing, uh, they were not uh, in any way exempt from being held accountable for uh, their treatment of all people, but particularly women and girls. In Beijing, Hillary Clinton made her first appearance at the UN Conference on Women, and in her own way, she made a direct hit on the Chinese and all other countries that violate the human rights of women, but especially the Chinese. Really, it came down to my husband saying, if you want to go, go. For a first lady, it is highly unusual to deal even indirectly with superpower diplomacy, especially at a time when relations with China were just beginning to thaw. And I, I felt very strongly about it and worked on the speech for a long time, as you recall, trying to get it uh, right. It turned out to be uh, a watershed moment for women's rights and... I remember the uh, Chinese government shut off all of the broadcast media once I started, and it was clear I was going to criticize them. And it became uh, a rallying cry. I still travel around the world today and go to some of the poorest places in the world, and women will uh, greet me by saying, you know, women's rights are human rights, and will tell me what has happened in their country because the the legal changes, it's not that everything has been implemented that was changed, but at least we began to get changes so that women would have, you know, inheritance rights, for example, that they would get voting rights, that they would be, um, it would be possible for them to continue education and so much more. Uh, so it had a very big ripple effect that to some extent, you know, still continues because it provided a framework so that people couldn't uh, marginalize and dismiss uh, women's rights, that somehow, yeah, there were women's rights over there that, you know, we'll pay attention to them when we get to them, but then there was human rights, and human rights was really important, and that was just nonsense, and I was, you know, determined to uh, sort of smash that and, and marry up the two. At the same time, you're seeing all of this and trying to respond and uh, really make a difference, uh, you come to realize the extraordinary role women are playing in peace building. Yes. You and I started, as I traveled, to meet with women in every place we went. And we met women who had been in conflict. I'll never forget the meeting we had in Eritrea, where these women had been living underground as um, soldiers for years. And the devastation of their lives and their personal experiences. They all appeared to have, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, but listening to them trying to come to grips with a different future, or when we were in El Salvador and we had the meeting with the women who were on opposite sides of that civil war and listening to them try to talk to each other. So we were doing a lot of this work as we traveled around the world. And it was very gratifying to see how you could if you stayed with it and you got smart, energetic, politically savvy people on the ground, you could actually make progress. 
No, and, and what is so interesting that those years when all of this was happening, uh, you're the first lady. Uh, and moving forward, you do become the Secretary of State. And I know that there was a lot of um, surprise on the part of uh, many colleagues at State about how well informed you were about uh, these realities. Uh, but beyond that, just how uh, strong you were in the need to really integrate women's issues into U.S. foreign policy. Why was that so important? Well, I think uh, going into the State Department was a, a tremendous opportunity to try to integrate various aspects of American foreign policy so that the whole really was bigger than the sum of the parts. And I was convinced then, I'm equally if not more convinced now, that women's rights had to be a central part of American foreign policy because we were getting more and more evidence all the time that if you don't empower women, you don't allow women into your economy, you don't allow women to be educated, you don't give women uh, a chance to have a voice in society, you will find in places that deny women their rights more of a likelihood that those places uh, will take actions against the United States and our interests. So it wasn't some kind of um, you know, nice thing to do that would be you know, really uh, very wonderful for women who we recognized. It was because I saw and believed that it was connected with not only our national security, but our own values and our ideals. So, for example, when I became Secretary of State, I said, well, we have to judge ourselves, too. Not a particularly popular position in some quarters, but I thought, we need to take a look at ourselves. I mean, if we're going to be pointing fingers and saying, you know, your laws are inadequate when it comes to, say, sex trafficking, uh, how good are our laws and how much are we enforcing them and how do we do better? Because if we want to be the, the monitor, maybe even the arbiter of human rights, then we've got to try to show we're living up to them. So I, I was pleased that I persuaded uh, President Obama to appoint the first ever uh, ambassador for global women's issues and that you agreed to be in that position. Uh, and that on the very last day of my tenure as Secretary of State, I went over to the White House and the president signed uh, an executive order to continue the position now. You know, we know we have challenges in the current administration, but at least we did get uh, that mark made. Well, and I think you so well uh, said that uh, when you said this just isn't the right thing to do. We know it's a moral imperative, uh, women's equality, but that it was the smart thing to do. I just knew that if we didn't focus on peace and security and and the role that women can and should play, uh, we would be missing opportunities that would make a big difference uh, to ending conflict, saving lives, and creating more peaceful uh, situations that would be good for the United States. Well, and, and I think one of the things that you, you really got across uh, was that these are not special projects on the side. Well, women know things about their daily lives that are important for people trying to hammer out uh, the end to conflicts and peace agreements. Remember that great story? I think it came out of Darfur, where these men were meeting for days trying to 
uh, set some new boundaries. And they were, uh, you know, arguing over this uh, line on a map, which was designated a river. And one of the women who was serving them, she was not certainly at the table, uh, finally spoke up and said, there is no more river. It has dried up. Uh, and nobody knew that uh, until this woman interjected because she knew that area and women would go to rivers to wash clothes and you could no longer go to that river because it was no longer there. There were so many examples like that. As you pointed out, uh, there's been a lot of progress, but there has also been um, a lot of struggle with that progress and still a lot to be done. And certainly one of those areas is women in politics, uh, something you know personally. Uh, but if you look at all of those areas of engagement, one of the areas that is the most difficult to close the gap on is women uh, in positions of elected office. It is extremely difficult. Why is it so hard when women have a perspective, they've got talents, and especially experiences that are important to public policy? Well, I think there are certain cultural and structural um, answers to that question in different parts of the world. For example, people always ask me, how come there's been you know, women prime ministers and uh, chancellors in places like the UK and Germany and India and all these other countries? And a parliamentary system is, to some extent, uh, more uh, susceptible to women rising because you have a small constituency that you can work hard to serve and your colleagues are the group that you convince uh, to uh, anoint you leader and then if you get enough seats, you can become you know, the governmental leader. And presidential systems are just harder. They're harder because uh, you start from a, uh, a blank slate and you have to, in our system certainly raise a lot of money, which women have historically been shut out of, disadvantaged uh, in doing. But there are still a lot of structural and attitudinal um, obstacles to, uh, to women. And I, you know, I think that there remains a double standard and there remains a deep anxiety about women in power. And there's a lot of evidence of that, academic uh, research certainly bears that out, and then there's anecdotal real-life experience. It'll take time to try to persuade people when it comes not to legislative positions as much as executive positions that women should be given the chance uh, to lead. You know, as long as I've known you, uh, you've talked about civic activism. Uh, the habits of the heart and what we should be doing always to preserve our democracy, uh, to value it, uh, to cherish it, and to act accordingly. And I know you've just come out with the paperback of uh, what happened, and in it you have a new essay on democratic values and what we all need to be doing, because democracy is under siege all over the world. Yes, it is. Uh, and certainly what we need to do at home and what others um, uh, are up against in many, many places. Uh, you want to expand a little bit on why it's so important today to be engaged? Well, there is a retrenchment uh, against democracy going on. Uh, it seems somewhat at odds with the fact that in uh, the West particularly, 
Uh, people's standard of living is higher. It may not be as high as uh, desired, or it may not be um, free from the inequality and the uh, uh, discrimination that exists against many people uh, in our society as well as others. But there's been a uh, turn toward nationalism and in some instances, uh, a kind of tribalism that uh, in, it substitutes for the messy work of democracy, a desire to submit to authoritarian uh, leadership. Certainly we're seeing, you know, we have seen that over years now in Russia, we're seeing it in Hungary, we're watching it in real time in Poland, where authoritarian leaders play on the insecurities and the fears and the resentments and the biases of people to make the promise that uh, they are going to be on their side, however that's interpreted. And uh, it's, it's economic, but it's deeper than that. It's psychological and cultural. And uh, here in our country, uh, as you say in the afterword, I've written about my book, What Happened, uh, I make several points about our democracy being in crisis, and I don't use the word lightly because I am not, uh, you know, someone who likes to you know, foment hysteria and paranoia. The point is that you have a moment in our country's history that it should be deeply concerning. I don't care what your politics are um, about what kinds of values are being undermined and attacked and what we will end up with. Uh, because if we keep going, nobody's safe. It's not just your political enemies. It's anybody who crosses an authoritarian. And that could be somebody different tomorrow than it is today. So a lot of work going forward. <laughs> yes. Uh, it continues. I know you always used to say the work of democracy is something we have to tend to every single day. And can I ask, do you remain optimistic? I do. I do, because I think the uh, strength of the uh, sort of American uh, DNA is being summed up. I mean, the amount of activity that we've seen uh, since the 2016 election that we continue to see uh, in marches, demonstrations, uh, the remarkable advocacy by the Parkland students, uh, which I think has impressed you know, so many of us because it is cutting through the nonsense, going right to the heart of uh, the debate over uh, are we going to care for each other or not. Uh, so yes, I, am, I remain optimistic. Ever onward. <laughs> Ever onward. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, Melan. Secretary Clinton and I traveled together to over 60 countries where we met so many women who were building peace and making their communities and countries more secure. Their stories are indeed powerful, but we also need data and research to confirm the important role women play in peace and security, to recognize for government leaders and policymakers alike that this just isn't the right thing to do, but the smart thing. We at Georgetown are committed to building the evidence-based case for women's meaningful participation in peace and security. 
we know women can and do play an important role, including in Afghanistan. The physical remnants of ongoing conflict have made Afghanistan one of the world's leaders in landmines. Every year, thousands of people are killed or injured because of mines, some of which date back to the Soviet invasion in 1979. Digging up and destroying live landmines is crucial and dangerous work. Reporter Margot Ben went to the Afghan region of Bamyan to bring us this story about the country's first female demining squad. I'm in a small helicopter on the tarmac of Kabul airport, about to leave for Bamyan, in the center of Afghanistan. It's known for its majestic statues of the Buddha, which date back to the 6th century AD and were carved into the cliffs surrounding the city. In 2001, the Taliban destroyed the statues because they represented a time when Islam hadn't made its way to Afghanistan. But in recent years, the province has become one of the safest areas in the country. It's also one of the least conservative, especially when it comes to women. So that's where the UN recently chose to set up Afghanistan's very first female demining squad. Afghanistan has pretty much been at war for 40 years now. Because of its violent history, Afghanistan is one of the countries most affected by landmines and unexploded devices. Last year, more than 2,000 Afghans were killed or injured by so-called ERWs, explosive remnants of war. To date, more than 18 million ERWs, like anti-personal mines, have been cleared, but there's still a lot to do. I traveled to Bamyan with the UN to meet some of the women who've taken on these dangerous jobs. The next day, around 4.30 a.m., I go meet Zahra, one of the deminers at her home, nestled in the mountains, where she lives with her husband. Welcome to my house. Zahra is 24. She's from a small village and just graduated from college with a degree in geology. When did you wake up? Four o'clock. I get up. Zahra wakes up every day in the early hours to do house chores and get ready for a full day's work at one of the last remaining minefields in the province. The UN's counting on women like Zahra to do this work. They're hoping that when they're through, Bamiyan will be the first fully demined province in the country. She let me hang out with her while she got ready. You put on makeup to go demine a field? Yes. <laughs> she also put on sunscreen, powder, lipstick. That's Zahra's husband, Nasrallah. He's still a student, so she's the sole breadwinner of their household. She gets a goodbye hug from her husband, and we're off to the work site. It's a few kilometers away from where she lives, and on our way there, we pick up Jamila, a woman in her 40s who's also a member of the team. Jamila is raising her three children on her own, as her husband works in a remote part of the province. How is it like leaving your children so early to go demine a field? My youngest is four years old, and the middle one is nine. So my eldest daughter takes care of her siblings during the day. I haven't told the little ones what I do for a living now. They still think I'm a teacher. As we head to the camp in a 4 by 4 through winding dirt roads, we soak in the landscape as the sun begins to rise. Bamiyan is a mountainous region, more than 2,500 meters high, and the hills surrounding us have a golden color. She says the Bamiyan mountains looking very nice. With us is Kadir, a member of the UN partner organization who trained the female deminers. 
He's also a translator who helped me out. At the camp, the tender miners and their medic, also a woman, gather to change into their beige uniforms with a shoulder patch that says Deminer in English and Persian. It's time to head to the minefield, which is at the top of a mountain. We step out of the 4x4 at the foot of a steep path that leads all the way to the minefield, which is only accessible by hiking. Before heading there, the women kneel in a row on the ground, their equipment neatly laid down in front of them to pray. One of the team leaders recites the prayer. Landmines in Afghanistan were planted throughout their decades of war. Fresh mines are being buried today by insurgent groups, the Taliban and ISIS. But here in Bamyan, most are from the civil war of the 1990s. At the top of the mountain, the land is still scarred from the battles waged here decades ago. We are currently where the crossfire was, so they put mines in between the two groups of Mujahideen fighting. Yes. Oh. So this crater was uh, from a bomb from the war? Yes. There are many like that in the mountains? A lot of them. All of the area is put the mine, Russian bomb. The minefield looks like a labyrinth. Safe areas, and those which remain to be cleared by the deminers, are marked with different colored rocks. You see, this is a boundary line. We can't put our feet beyond those little rocks. Exactly, exactly. The red color shows the dangerous area. The white color shows the safe area. Just in case an accident should happen, the team leaders are in constant radio contact with an ambulance back at base camp. While Kadir and I were inspecting the surroundings, the women have put on blue anti-explosion vests and large visors to protect their face. Kadir and I are offered protective gear that we gladly accept. I walk over to where Zahra and her teammates are assembling their tools, metal detectors, rakes, shovels, brushes. They had to go through a month-long intensive training with the UN to learn how to do this work. The women are dispatched across the minefield, each assigned to a particular area that they'll need to clear before the end of the workday. Zahra takes tiny steps scanning a small area with her mine detector. This sound is called a full signal. It means the detector has found something. She crouches down carefully and opens the toolkit that never leaves her side. Can you explain to me what you're doing? First, I go over the area with my mine detector. When I hear a signal, I mark the spot with some rope and start raking and digging the earth. It could be a mine, but also a small fragment or shell. Are you afraid? No, when I hear a full signal, I just keep working, because I need to concentrate even more. This time, what Zahra found is a shell left over from gunfire that occurred perhaps 10 years ago. They put small shells like these in a pit to be discarded. Another deminer, Sharifa, has spotted an actual UXO, unexploded ordnance. She scans small spots with her detector, then starts carefully raking and digging. This is a meticulous job. Any mistake could be fatal. What are you going to do once you get to U the UXO? They call us. They sound like this. Bomb. I find a bomb. Then I told them, stop working. We will explode the bombs or the mine at the end of the day. Okay. 
After a long day's work, the women walk back down the mountain in the setting sun. They form a line, resting their metal detector on their shoulder. The mountains have a soft golden color. Zahra makes her way back home, where her husband Nasrallah is waiting. Most welcome. Kadir and I are invited for tea. Tea is ready. We sit on traditional pillows called tushaks on the floor of their living room. Zahra has slipped out of her uniform and is wearing a pink headscarf loosely around her face. She and Nasrallah exchange loving glances, hold hands and even hug in front of us, which is unusual in Afghanistan. <laughs> Zohra says there are several reasons why she applied for the demining squad. I joined the mining team because here there was no work for me as a woman. Is it especially difficult for women to find a job here? Yes, unemployment is a huge problem in our country and it especially affects women. For example, I have a degree in geosciences, but there aren't any jobs in that field. Also, women are especially affected by unexploded devices here in Afghanistan. Compared to men, they're less educated on the dangers of landmines. So, for example, mothers don't know to raise awareness among their children. And that's why so many children die or lose limbs when they go out to play and step on an unexploded device. Zahra has actually experienced this firsthand. A few years ago, my little cousin was playing outside and he brought an unexploded device back home. He thought it was a toy. It exploded and he died. It was a terrible time for my family. It must be pretty nerve-wracking for Nasrallah to know that every day his wife risks her life walking on an actual minefield. At first I was reluctant because it seems very dangerous, but I am proud of what she is doing. She is doing her best to help the people of our country. But at first, not everyone was as understanding as Nasrallah. Everyone told me, you can't do this job, but I told them, I'm confident, I can do it. Especially neighbors, they were surprised that a woman wanted to do such a dangerous job that is normally for men. But I went back to see them after I completed the training and showed them I'd become a real deminer. They were shocked and they told me, you are a brave woman. Since I first met Zahra in the beginning of August, she's now moved on to become a mine risk education instructor, and her husband has followed in her footsteps. Together, they organize workshops and help train the new team of women deminers. Women can do anything that men can do. We want to show that we are as strong as men. <laughs> I leave Zahra and Nasrallah as they prepare to make dinner and go to sleep early. Tomorrow, Zahra will rise again before the sun for another full day at the minefield. To see photos from Margot Ben's reporting trip to Banyan province, head to our website, giwps.georgetown.edu backslash seekingpeace. Next time on Seeking Peace, I sit down with actress and human rights activist Ashley Judd.
Seeking Peace is a production of Georgetown University's Institute for Women, Peace, and Security and Hard Listening Media. Our associate producer is Ali Post. The show is edited by Ibi Caputo and sound designed by Sarah Curtis with help from Steve Bone. Our production manager is Sarah Rutherford and our executive producer is Kate Osborne. Original music composed by Allison Layton Brown. This show was made possible by the Compton Foundation. We are a new series, and if you liked what you heard, please share with your friends and family. And leave us a rating on iTunes. It helps other people find us.